My guest today is Arvid Kahl. Arvid is a software engineer, entrepreneur, and writer. He co-founded and bootstrapped Feedback Panda, an online teaching productivity SaaS with his partner, Daniel Simpson. They sold the business for a life-changing amount of money in 2019, two years after founding the company. He writes on thebootstrappedfounder.com to share his experience with bootstrapping as a desirable value and wealth generating way of running a company. Arvid, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Really nice intro. I like it. <laughs> well, thank you for providing that on the back of this book, which I have in my hands here, which I, I just picked up, which is uh, Zero to Sold, which uh, oh. I guess we didn't mention in the intro. But but you have this book, Zero to Sold. Uh, right. I've been really, really enjoying this. And I was hoping to chat with you uh, about the contents of this book today and, and your story with Feedback Panda and, and, and much more. So um, I figure the best way maybe for us to get into it is uh, give us a bit of your background and uh, maybe get into the story of Feedback Panda, what uh, what that company was all about and, and sort of how it started and where it went to. Yeah, so um, the description that you started with, like and software engineer slash entrepreneur slash writer, that's kind of the progression that I had in my life. Like I started out as a just a geek liking computers, went to computer science university, uh, dropped out of that and then did some other things, dropped out of them as well. Just had like a couple projects here or there. Um, was a freelancer, was a software engineer that was employed at a couple of companies, one in, in San Francisco in the Valley, like a VC funded startup, and then some traditional um, German software companies because I am German. So um, that's also where I am right now. I'm in Berlin, in Germany. Um, so I've been doing all these kind of things in the software engineering space, always interested in entrepreneurship because if you are in the indie hacker community, then you just kind of want to build a business yourself in some way, right? Mm. Like a software engineer, I don't think you can avoid seeing indie hackers coming up every now and then out of your just vicinity. Like some people you meet at a meetup, oh yeah, I have this side project. And have you, have you seen indie hackers, that kind of stuff? So I was kind of sucked into this community as an engineer. And then um, at, at some point, Danielle and I, we, we found a problem that was commonly shared by a lot of people in, in her job. She was an English online teacher. Um, and she had a lot of organizational work to do just really to talk to the, the parents of the kids she was teaching through the web. And you had to file reports so that parents would know what's going on. And that was a lot of writing and a lot of repetitive stuff. And whenever a, a software engineer hears text and repetitive stuff, they immediately think of templating, substitutions, that kind of stuff. And that came to my mind. So when we talked about how can we make this easier for you, we came up with a quick product which uh, we prototyped quite uh, quite quickly for her to use. And then we just opened it up to her community, which was a very niche community of online English teachers teaching. And I think that's our definition of the niche. I'm, I'm trying to, to get this together because it's super specific. It's like online English teachers teaching uh, English as a second language online for China, mm -hmm. hired by Chinese companies teaching Chinese children conversational English through the web browser. That's like right. the, the specific... Quite niche specific. that we were serving super specific and therefore very homogenous like all these people were doing the exact same job and they had the exact same problems and we found a way to solve their most critical problem which was not spending two hours a day of unpaid time on feedback which you need to even get paid it was a it was a whole thing so that's uh the business that we built was a little SaaS project that we sold um 
monthly subscriptions to and people would have like a little browser extension and that would forward them into our platform and they could have like feedback templates and it was turning these two hours a day of extra work into maybe five minutes altogether mm, cool. saving people two hours a day and that's a lot for online english teachers because those people don't necessarily make a lot of money teachers mm. never make a lot of money nowhere in, in no field so saving two hours means being able to teach for two more hours and that is money on the table so that was the business that, that we, we started essentially from dog feeding a product to ourselves that Danielle needed so we could spend more time together in the day. I was back then still working as a salaried engineer for a company mm -hmm. in Hamburg in, in Germany here, which is two and a half hours by train. And I would commute, um, I, was it like two days or three days a week? I, I think it was three days a week at that point, um, mm -hmm. would commute back and forth. So it was 15 hours of doing nothing, which gave me a lot of time to actually um, listen to a lot of podcasts and read a lot of books. And the moment you read books like The 4-Hour Workweek and Built to Sell and The E-Myth and, you know, all these inspirational entrepreneurial books, you kind of you itch to build something. So this was a pretty welcome insight into this community that had a really, really clear, commonly shared critical problem. And we built a business from that. Yeah, we ran it for two years, just the two of us. Um, and then we sold it um, to a private equity company for, like you said, a life-changing amount of money. And my life has been changed ever since. And I've been writing ever since that point. But yeah, but the engineering is where it really started for me. Gotcha. Okay, that's really awesome. And I mean, it's, I suppose, not every engineer that will come across uh, a problem space that they see out in the world, whether it be your own, your own problems, your own itches that you want to scratch, or maybe those around you, like in your case, uh, it was your partners. Um, what I suppose is different about you that made you kind of look at uh, the issues that your partner was having with this uh, extra amount of time she had to, to put into this teaching stuff and, and uh, had you say, I'm going to build a product around this. I mean, that's not everyone who's going to do that do you have like entrepreneurial roots do were you you know selling ice cream as a kid uh you know uh doing lemonade stands that kind of thing or where did where did that begin i think i have a, like a digital equivalent of that i was selling uh D diablo 2 items online and on ebay when i was like 12 or 13 or something like that okay so i i started um trying to find value where uh or more like the, the lack of value the lack of something that had value for people and trying to fill yeah. that void. That was what I've always been trying to, to figure out. And um, I've been, like I said, I've been a freelancer for a while. And during that time, I was trying to get a couple bootstrap businesses off the ground with friends, both mm -hmm. here in Berlin and uh, somewhere else, just really trying to build a little local food marketplace for the people outside of Berlin to deliver there, the farmers to deliver fruit and vegetables into the city and for the hipsters to eat it here, like all this kind of stuff, because it's an obvious problem that was clear to me or clear to to us as a group. And another little project where we would have a file distribution system for um, photojournalists who are embedded in, I don't know, the Iraq or Afghanistan to, to upload files efficiently through a low bandwidth kind of connection. We just had ideas for clear problems. So I've, I've always understood, and this is more like a thing in retrospect maybe, but um, looking back at those failures for those projects, um, I learned a lot about what we assumed to be right but never mm. validated. So validation was a thing that I learned quite um yeah, strongly over time is a thing I cannot skip and I should never skip, right? So right. The, the entrepreneurial spirit has always been there. I always see things and I want to build something, but now I really take this step back and think, okay, 
one second, is there an actual potential target audience? Hmm. Do they actually have this as a critical problem? And is there a solution that fits into their workflow? And can this be turned into a product that works in the medium that they use already? Like all these questions are super important to answer before you Hmm. should even consider your idea, right? Because the idea is a result of all these things being validated. And that's that's what I found. if you look at Product Hunt, there are always a couple of really cool projects every single day, and then you scroll down, and then there's all the other projects, right? Mm-hmm. And on those other projects are the ones, essentially, solutions looking for a problem. Like, they are things that people have built because they thought it needed to happen, and then they noticed that nobody wants it because nobody right. actually feels this as a critical problem, or if it is a critical problem, not enough people actually have it. There's enough reasons along this way of validation, this kind of path that you have to go through to make sure that you actually validate every step along the way mm-hmm. to fail. And most people skip this. And I have understood um, that there is a path w- with these validations that makes it at least more likely that the business and the product and the idea that you develop can actually fly and turn mm-hmm. into a business that creates wealth for you and value for your customers and is essentially something useful. Right, right. Gotcha. So let's talk about validation then, because this is something that might be a little bit nebulous to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea of being able to tell ahead of time whether or not a product, a potential product has legs would be something that would be well-received, well needed by potential customers, etc. Um, do you have any kind of particular framework that you you have in mind when you're looking at an idea that you've got and, and wanting to validate it? Is there, are there like a are there definitive steps that you go through or is it kind of like uh, using your spidey senses a little bit to be able to see whether whether it's going to actually have value? Well, um, let me answer two questions, <laughs> right? The one you asked and the, the other one that I want to ask, because sure. the thing is like when you start from an idea, when you start from a product, you already skipped a couple parts. So um, th- I just want to interject this here. So yep. so we, we know like what I, what I try to say. If you um, start with the people that you want to help, and you listen to them and understand what commonly shared problems they have, what they always run into, what they can't really deal with, with the existing tools that are out there or the existing solutions that they know. And then you think of how can I help these people solve this particular commonly shared critical problem? That is already a validation step in and itself. Mm-hmm. If you if you think, okay, I'm, I'm going to build something uh, because I've, I've run into this problem and I bet and I think many people have too, then you kind of miss out on all the actual problems that people consistently communicate that they need solved, right? right. I, like how many people have built a, an error reporting tool? And mm-hmm. and there's Sentry out there. There's like, there's, there's a lot of different... I'm just the JavaScript-based error reporting tools. I, I bet there's like 10 or 12 that are like actually sustainable businesses already. And they just mm-hmm. try to like uh, go to tiny different niches in the market and, and go with them. But the, the idea is like you, if you build yet another tool like this, you just have so much competition and you have a hard time building a moat around your product because yeah. this is a problem that is actually already solved you mm-hmm. might be interested in solving it. And this is the curse of entrepreneurs that are also developers. At least that's what I feel. Like my problem is that I'm interested in solving technical challenges. Yeah. And I know that if I sell to developers, they are also interested in solving technical challenges. They would actually probably spend a week solving the problem that I can sell them just because yeah. they can. 
You know, like that's right, that's right. Yeah. Hard audience or industry to sell to because they actually enjoy the process of solving a problem. So when I when I think about, I had this idea once. I wanted to build this little JavaScript thing that would display a banner in on the top of your website whenever you had maintenance or or downtime or something like a WebSocket based service. And of course, there's already 20 out there. And they all are competing like the bottom of the barrel for pricing because they are so very specific that yeah. there's really not that much difference between them. And it's just, yeah, if I, I would be interested in building this, probably, but can it sustain a business? Well, probably not, right? So right. that's the first thing I, I kind of wanted to, to say, like your idea is not necessarily good. The good products out there are the ones that are, responses to research that you do within this community of the audience, figuring out what they actually need. Like if I, yep. if I look at, I'm an Elixir and JavaScript developer, right? I, I work with Elixir on the backend and JavaScript on the front end and it kind of works and it's awesome. So if I wanted to figure out what Elixir devs need in terms of tooling, well, I'm not just going to think of what I ran into my in my last project. Yep. I'm just going to go where they are, go into their Slacks, into their Discords, into their online communities, and figure out what problems occur all the time. And I'm going to have yep. a tally, and I'm going to try and figure out why they occur, to whom they occur, novices or experts, and who has the budget, and all these little things are in there. And we're going to get to that in a second. And then I'm going to choose the product I'm going to build. Not going to build the first thing that comes to my mind because I have a lot of cool ideas and very few of them are actually businesses that could fly. So right. the the steps that I would suggest taking, and I do have a framework that's in zero to sold in, in particular, it's like this audience problem solution product framework that I kind of hinted mm -hmm. at already. And in, in the, the book that I'm currently writing, which is called The Embedded Entrepreneur, I'm going even deeper into this audience part. So this... Um, which was the most interesting part uh, of Zero to Soul to me. Like you can see the, the Zero to Soul, the book has four uh, different parts essentially, mm -hmm. but the, the first half of the book, the first 250 pages is part one. It's mm -hmm. the preparation stage. It's what right. to do before you write the first line of code, right? Because there's right. so much stuff that you need to get right or at least think about before you start building that it fills half a book on the whole journey from zero to X exit of a business mm -hmm. so that part uh, was already super interesting to most people and i'm now diving in further into the audience part of how to figure out who you want to help who you actually want to serve because that is actually not the most commonly reflected thing that people think about much like software mm -hmm. engineer probably going to build another tool for software engineers because that's what i know Right? Or you come from a marketing background, you have some developer chops or you use no code or whatever. Well, I'm going to do something for marketers. It's always this kind of mirror thing, right? That you're going to, you're going to sell stuff to the people that are like you, but it doesn't <laughs> necessarily have to be so. And that's where Feedback Panda was the epiphany for me in particular, right. because like being an Eng English online teacher, that's not me, right? I could barely speak yeah. the language. I couldn't teach it or I don't think I could, but Danielle could. And she understood very succinctly the problems of her industry and of her peers. So she had this insight that I lacked. So the team that we that we formed, because we were business partners, we were also partners in real life. So that's kind of convenient because I could see yeah. that she was struggling with this stuff and she could see that I was building solutions to these kind of problems that kind of worked out pretty well. But having somebody or being somebody who is also part of another community is incredibly helpful to just expand who you could help. Because mm -hmm. um, this is part of, of my new book. It's like an exercise and stepping through your day and trying to actively think of what kind of communities you're part of. Just mm -hmm. 
off the top of my head, I'm a software engineer, I'm a writer, I'm a podcaster, I'm a podcast guest, I'm a, you know, you know like I'm, I like fish in an aquarium. So that is kind of cool. I like coffee yeah. in the morning and I like to shower. And, you know, like there's all these little groups of people that we are parts, a part of either consciously or subconsciously that you could potentially serve. And for an engineer, the kind of knowledge that you, you can transfer from your engineering background into a, an, a very non-engineering culture like teaching is mm -hmm. incredible. Like mm -hmm. the people in, in online teaching, they, they, they don't understand the most basic things that an engineer completely understands. Mm -hmm. File versioning. Stuff like text expander, text snippets, like a, a code editor, just like these things, they are commonplace to a developer. But if you take these concepts and put them into another space where people also work with documents and where they also work with writing, their mind is blown. Yeah. When you yeah. just show them a, a text editor that has, that has multiple points where you can enter text in multiple lines at the same time, people have never seen this yeah, before. Right. And to right. us, it's like, yeah. oh yeah, we refresh to this code, like four key presses and <laughs> everything is different. That, that blows people's minds. And it does blow people's minds because they can actually derive really, really high amounts of value from these little things. So it actually, to me at least, it's so much more interesting to go outside of your domain of expertise and try yeah. to just transfer your knowledge and your skill set, the technology, into their world. And all of a sudden, they get this gigantic benefit and you mm -hmm. get to charge them for it. So as, sorry for the tangents. Like I, I tend good. to go on a tangent. So the idea <laughs> behind this validation process is to find a business idea that is so solid in its foundations in, in the audience, the problem that you solve for them and the solution to that problem that then tur gets turned into a product that you can rely on this and actually mm -hmm. start building a business, like building a repeatable model to sell this service to people and scale, right? That's the idea of it. So um, just to, to finish up, you can verify your audience. You can figure out, are these people out there? Do they have a budget for solutions? Do I like doing what they do? What they do? do I actually want to help them? And are there interesting problems in the space? You can do all of this by just essentially embedding in their community and watching yep. them for a while. And most of the engineers um, that listen to this podcast, they are already part of the community. Like right. Just by the virtue of listening to this podcast, you are part of the engineering community, right? So right. you and being on Twitter and, and, and forums and on Slacks and all this kind of stuff, you could just listen to people and see mm -hmm. what problems they have. And once you have a list of these problems, you can figure out which ones are critical. It's like a kind of this, um, this Eisenhower matrix of um, between urgency and importance, right? Is a problem right. important and urgent? Well, then it's critical. If it's either, maybe not. And if it's neither, then just like completely dismiss it. You can mm -hmm. sort and prioritize the problems that you have in the space and then validate it. Actually talk to people and say, I, I think... I, I figured out a critical problem. Can you explain to me how you do this? And then to figure mm -hmm. out and try to see how people try to work through this pro uh, this problem and what solutions they employ and how much it actually hurts them, right? There's a couple mm -hmm. of criteria to this. And I go through this in the book. I don't really want to expand on that just now, but you can find a lot of specific properties to a critical problem and you can find them in those problems, list by them, take the most critical one and see if you can kind of come up with a solution that fits right. into people's existing workflows. And once you have that, you can have beta users, you can validate mm -hmm. the actual solution that you're building as a prototype with those people. And then once you have a product that people are willing to pay for, well, you turn on Stripe and let people yep. actually be charged. 
and then you go into the next stage of your business. But this to me is the most important part is this whole process of validation that starts long before your prototype. And right. that may even start long before you ever think of an idea for a product that you want to build. Yeah, totally. That's great. Thank you for that. Uh, one of the, one thing that comes to mind is that there is this theme of being able to tell whether or not your potential customers would be willing to pay for the thing that you're thinking about building them early on, like really early on, so that you can be sure that you know if a few people are willing to pay for it, potentially if it's a if it's a large enough market, you're going to get a, a large volume of people willing to pay for it. Um, was that the case for Feedback Panda? Like, did you do that kind of sort of validation ahead of time, like uh, even before building stuff? Did you go to people and say, would you pay for this? Would you pay for this now? Would you give me your credit card now rather than just telling me that you're going to pay for it? Did you do any kind of validation around um, how, how much appetite people actually had to, to hand over their, their, their money to you? We, we did some validation, but it looked a bit different. Like You, you have to understand that, that the online English teacher market is a very price sensitive market. Like I mm -hmm. said, teachers don't make much money. So any money that they spend, they are really, really careful with. And um, they, they, but what was good for us was that they understood that they were actually freelancers, right? Those, those yeah. teachers were hired by these Chinese companies, essentially gig economy style to teach yeah. online on a schedule. They, they would just kind of get them the gig and then they would be paid. That's, that's kind of how this worked. So these people already understood that they had a budget or that at least they could like text deduct these kind of things in the end. Yeah. So they understood themselves to be entrepreneurs. So what we did was not going in there with our prototype, but we actually looked at what other things they were already spending money on because mm, okay. we, these people were obviously entrepreneurial. They understood themselves at least over time to be freelance teachers Yep. Who would have who would have thought that there would be a movement where people who were like in the classroom now were freelancers? But that just happened, right? The internet yep. made it possible. And then we looked at what else they bought, and there was a, a, a program they they bought quite often and recommended to new teachers to buy called ManyCam, which is like a little um, webcam filter thing where you can put like funny backgrounds into your back uh, into your okay. camera stream and your video stream and uh, like little that, things uh, that walk through. It's like just, that lawyer who had a, that lawyer I who am had not a cat, a cat. cat <laughs> I'm not a cat guy. <laughs> that, that kind of stuff you can you can definitely put that in. Uh, yeah. Honestly, that that would be awesome because you need to engage kids, and these are like yeah. four to ten year old Chinese children that don't speak a word of English that you have to engage with, right? So right. you better be funny. You better have a lot of movement going on, a lot of dancing and singing. So and being a cat is probably hilarious to them. It certainly right. was hilarious to me in, in that particular <laughs> meme. So um, yeah, that's a program that. That they immediately suggested for every new teacher who, who joined the platform to buy. So yeah. that confirmed two things. First off, people have a budget for tools, for digital mm -hmm. tools, and they actually recommend them, which is important, right? Like if you have to find this out yourself because the shareability of the service that you're looking at is so low, um, there's, a, there's a blog post by Ryan Kalb uh, on referral systems and he talks mm -hmm. about shareability and that's very interesting because not every software is uh, sh the same on the same level of shareability there's mm -hmm. there's software like i would say like off off zero is a good good example like yeah. that literally is a thing hey this works awesome for me if you want to have like easy um authentication use this tool you can share right. this with people and people will understand that there's a benefit but if there is software that you use because you're actually compensating for something that is shameful because it's something mm. that you should be good at, but you're not, will you tell people that you're using this? Like, like a, a tool that helps you like just get to the bare minimum of what people expect 
of you right. like getting getting out of poverty tools like this like mm -hmm. this is not necessarily something that you share with your family right? right so and and that is a shareability concern some tools are very shareable and some are not ours luckily would be because it's a tool yep. that is it's like a, it's not a zero sum game like if you are a better teacher you may get a more a couple more students but you're not really taking away other students from the other teachers in the yeah. field there's more than enough um Ch chinese parents who want their kids to learn english online and there's there's not enough teachers that it's, it's a essentially um a supply driven market at this point yeah. so people will get their there's in your favor they will they, because their, their schedule is filled if they want to. So having a tool like this will only make you more money. And yeah. if everybody makes more money, then everybody is happier in, in this kind of community, at least, where money is in short supply. So it was innately shareable and we didn't even have to do much marketing. Um, <laughs> so essentially our marketing, just to jump right in, was a, a, a reply, a comment in a Facebook post in one of these, these Facebook community groups where these teachers <laughs> would have. Like Danielle started out uh, teaching when there was like around five or seven thousand of these teachers teaching for this yep. one particular school, and they were always talking about feedback because obviously it was the critical problem. So it was the one problem they would always talk about, right, all the time. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh yep. man, gotta have to do uh, today. It's like twenty uh, lessons worth of feedback. This is gonna take me two hours. How do you guys deal with this? And then people right. shared their crude little systems. Oh yeah, I have this word document. Then I copy this section and I change the name and I paste it here and then I copy this and this only takes me eight minutes instead of 10 like that kind of yep. stuff right it was bizarre but people had worked their own little systems just to be a tiny bit faster and then other people would say well there's this google sheet where the teachers had already started sharing templates but it was still one big google sheet and you had to scroll and do stuff it was complicated but there were yep. systems already which was also validation for us right if people were already going through great lengths to build something to deal with mm. this because it was so yep. hard to get this right like there must be a budget in there and between knowing that there's a budget for tools and knowing that people already had built systems it was just a perfect mix there um yeah right. and, and that's that's really what we what we built them the marketing on was word of mouth because the moment we, we commented under one of these posts we use feedback panda and then put the link in there um after we launched it people just took it up i think the first yep. day just when i opened up essentially the, the platform to the outside world we had like 80 signups at this point mm. just fr from within the community and then wow. The 60 and 50 and 40 the next couple of days um and people just really liked it like retention was crazy with this business because it was really solving one particular problem that these people felt they had and it was one of these tools that you immediately understood the value of the moment you used it we had yep. preceded it with a couple of templates so people could just click one button and already get a finished piece of feedback so yep. we had like this little onboarding experience for them so the aha moment was extremely early and then yep. we also built a collaborative system into the product where people could share their templates with each other so the more people came to the platform the more valuable the platform was so by by right. inviting new people into the platform you're actually doing something for yourself in getting more templates in. It was it was just a self-sustaining, self-propelling system. And um, that was all we did in terms of marketing. We never had any paid advertising. We did a lot of community outreach and we had a newsletter and we highlighted a teacher every week from within our community just to like really give people something to talk about. But all yeah. our marketing was essentially word of mouth that we didn't have to do because our teachers did it for us.
Right, right. Gotcha. So it, it sounds to me like uh, this was a product that sits uh, sat within a very, very nice sweet spot, right? There was a, a, a large market, people were motivated to to, to want to save time. Uh, they had this was a necessity for their job. And this was something that was underserved, right? People were coming up with their own solutions for this thing. Uh, it sounds like there wasn't really anything on the market that would solve this problem in quite this way. I, I think a lot of uh, indie hackers, a lot of uh, developers who want to do a do some kind of SaaS product, they're faced with this dilemma that like a lot of the the stuff that they might want to do to help a particular market is already served by some kind of product, right? Maybe the product that either, maybe the products in that particular space don't do quite the thing that they're thinking of exactly, but there's already solutions out there for a lot of uh, a lot of these problem spaces. Uh, would you recommend, like, if, if people are, are looking around at the communities they're a part of, like we said, they're they're looking for something to build in a particular audience, would you recommend staying away from those kinds of spaces where there's already products in that space? Because you hear the opposite advice. You hear the 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 advice that um, if they're if there are products out there already, it proves that there's a market. Maybe you can improve upon the existing, you know, yeah. the incumbents. Uh, maybe you can make it better. Um, how do you think about that uh, in your own kind of product ideation? Do you do you stay away from those kinds of spaces, or do you kind of gravitate towards them? Um, it, it's it's almost almost both at the same time. Like I'm I'm mm -hmm. staying away from the spaces where people are established and have found like a pr product market fit like a kind of perfect audience that they are serving. But it doesn't mean that there is not a part of that market that is like slightly annoyed, you know, like there's right. always a, a big niche that always consists of multiple smaller niches, just by definition, right? You can yep. always say that that all software engineers are part of the big uh, like computer workers niche, but then there's the Ruby engineers and then there's the, the, the Rails engineers and you can always go up and down, zoom in and zoom out. And I would think, particularly if you're building a side project that you want to bootstrap, like something, an indie hacker project, essentially, that is not supposed to be a unicorn, but is supposed to be something that will change your perspective on, on financial security over time. Mm. That finds um, a fertile ground in those slightly underserved partial niches of already served larger niches. I hope that okay. makes sense. But structurally, yep. the idea is to, okay, now there is already an error tracking tool for JavaScript. Let me just take this example. Um, I haven't thought about it much, so this might go totally the wrong way. But the idea is, <laughs> so what about... Um, people who, who use like React or um, who, yep. who use particular um, frameworks and React and they need specific reporting on, yeah. I don't know, the, the internal rendering stuff that React does or on, on hooks and how that stuff works. Like, you know, like right. really, really specific information that the other JavaScript developers, ooh, Vue.js people, right? All these people and the, the Angular people and the Svelte people and, you know, all these other frameworks, they don't care about. Like yep. they, they, they don't have to uh, deal with JSX and they don't have to deal with particular parts of the framework or the library. So they don't need reporting on this. So I'm not going to serve those people. I'm only going to focus on the React people. And mm -hmm. you should know there's plenty of those, right? Like there's a lot of React devs that could benefit from more insight into the particulars of their applications. Right. So 
go there, build that. Yep. If you have this problem and you know this community exists, is large enough and has a budget and many React shops have a budget for um, for your performance monitoring tools and analytics, like obviously they do because that is why they why they uh, can make these, these optimization and improvements. Well, then build for this community. And if that's right. still too large, then go into React Native. Like go in, in, into one library that builds on this library and help people build their hybrid apps. In, in some way and find yep. the, the, the APM service for that. There's always a sub niche that you can go into and provide it that it's still big enough for you mm -hmm. to build a business in, but not big enough for other bigger competitors to find it very interesting, find yeah. it juicy. This kind of uh, Goldilocks zone, right? In between, it's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's just right. If you yep. can find that in your niche that is already somewhat saturated, you will have a much better shot at building something that people will actually use. First off, because you have a better tool, obviously. But second, also, you have a much clearer audience to talk to. You don't need to talk yeah. to the Angular people about this. You can go into the React uh, forums and the React communities and the React Facebook groups. Does that exist? And, you know, like <laughs> all these all these kind of communities that that are so specific that yeah. whoever you talk into uh, talk to in this community will understand why you're doing this this is right. a benefit right this is actually yep. going to make your marketing easier you know the language that these people speak you can tell mm -hmm. you can make a joke about hooks and they will get it right and no other developer would ever get that because they don't get it they, obviously they don't work with this so um that is a much much better starting point to build something and you you will get these specific kind of problems that this community has obviously in these communities right you will find yep. and understand and learn about this from within if you have chosen this very specific niche very cool yeah i'd love to uh, chat about um, one thing that's in your book which is the four stages of a bootstrap business and you've got these four stages you, you've mentioned a, a couple of them already so we'll dive into that before we get there though i i do want to vamp on this idea of a, a going into an audience and looking for pain just a little bit more and specifically what i was wondering about was um you know let's say you are this, it's the first time you're doing this. You, you, you're, you're, you're a part of various communities. You know, you have various interests, whatever they may be, and you want to go and try to serve some need there. Mm -hmm. uh, getting kind of tactical, maybe like specifically tactical here. Like, what would you? How do you go about looking for this pain? Right? There's, there's various, uh, I, I guess, ways that this is taught. If you're familiar with like Amy Hoy, I think she teaches it as like the sales safari kind of thing, <laughs> where you're going and you're looking for pain. But I've always wondered about like like tactically what does that look like if you're going into forums if you're going into uh you know message boards whatever you might be doing slack groups yeah. um what are you what are you looking for specifically how are your eyes focused when you go into these spots to look for pain so th thanks for mentioning sales safari that that has always been very inspirational to me and my, my embedded entrepreneurship approach is essentially inspired by that but goes okay. a bit deeper in, into more like community slash audience building as well like kind of like being part and becoming a reputable source of the community but th that's where this is coming from and I, I was actually just writing about this what very particular topic today so it's, it's quite yeah. fresh in my mind so that that's that will be helpful Excellent. so what i look for in communities when I'm looking for problems, problems in the wild, so to say, there's four things that I look for. One is complaints. And I, I'm, I'm, let me just list them all and then say why they are like that. The complaints, asking for help, asking for recommendations, and asking for alternatives. These are four okay. things that you can specifically look for. And I'm looking for these four things because they are actually also the, the steps on the this um, prospect awareness scale by, by a marketer called Eugene Schwartz. 
and it's it's about like how how much do people actually know about your product? It's kind of for marketing, but you can you can see this for for product um if, sorry for problem awareness as well. Like the, the the scale is from completely unaware; they don't even know that they have a problem. They're just suffering to a problem mm -hmm. aware. They know they have a problem, but they don't know that it can be solved to solution aware, which means they know that there's a solution, but they don't know who is making it yet to product mm -hmm. aware. They know the solutions. They just now have to figure out which one is the right one to completely aware where all you need to do is to essentially sell them your product and then the mm. sale is through, right? That's that's the whole scale. That's the idea behind the scale. And complaints, um, asking for help, asking for recommendations and asking for alternatives are the bottom four steps as well. Somebody who doesn't know that they have a problem, they're going to complain about it. They're going to say, why doesn't this work? How do you even do this? Like, isn't everybody outraged that this is not a thing? Like this is the kind of message that you can look for if you want to find a complaint, and if mm -hmm. you then it's just like essentially you, you make you open a, like a you know, Notion a document or like a Google Sheet or just a text document, you copy the link to whatever complaint forum post slash tweet or whatever you have, and you put it in there, and then uh, you you do this for for all the things you find in this community just from mm -hmm. the approach. Just want to mention that, and then you kind of tally these things. Like, are there similar? Are there common complaints? Are there common asks for recommendations? What is recommended? Like, should I look into this? You can tally this information, but for sourcing it, you look for these four things. For the completely okay. unaware, that's a complaint. For the slightly more aware, the people who know that they already have a problem, they just ask for help. They say, I can't deal with this. How do you deal with this? Right? How do right. you solve this problem? Can you help me? Like all these forum <laughs> posts where people are like, you, you've, you've probably uh, seen quite, quite, quite a few. Like I have this piece of source code and I just can't get it to compile, can't get it to, to run. What is wrong with this? So they know right. they have a problem. They just don't really know how to solve it. And those people will ask for help. And those people will attract people that like actually helping people. Right? They will mm -hmm. find people in the community that will respond to this. And that is an interesting thing because you can then start talking to those people about mm. problems that they've seen in the community. Because if you find somebody who likes to be a teacher, who likes to help actually empower other people, well, they've seen their fair share of common problems and things in this community that people yep. always talk about. So if you ask them, about what the most commonly mentioned, the most critical problems are, they can give you a pretty interesting clue about what you should be looking for. So you, you find those people that actually help and want to help other people in the community. And from there, you start asking them about the most commonly and most um, critically felt problems in that community. So kind of, that, that's what the, the um, embedded entrepreneurship approach is all about. It's like using the existing structures of a community to get to the information that you need to build an interesting and valuable product for this community. So that would be the part um, where people ask for help and then you kind of figure out what do they ask for about, which is an interesting thing, but also like who is asked, uh, who's responding. The next step for people who already are aware that there is a solution would be um, to yeah look for people asking for recommendations and look for what is being recommended for that particular problem. Because there's this interesting dynamic when, when a recommendation happens. Either people are super happy with it and they will tell you about it or they try it out and they don't like it and then there's silence or somebody's mm -hmm. going to yell. Yelling is also interesting in the community, at least. That gives you a good, good insight into that. But you, you will only really find um, appreciation for recommendations that work. Most mm. people um, will then at some point be frustrated again and ask in a different way. And you can kind of take that as a, some sort of signal. But you should definitely inspect these conversations and see what is being recommended and what people then actually end up using. Because mm. just because it's recommended doesn't mean it's the best solution out there. 
right? Which brings us to the next point. When people are solution aware and product aware, then they ask for alternatives. I've right. tried this. It sucks. What's better? Right. Yep. And that's maybe one of the most interesting stages to be in when you are an experienced developer, because obviously you can build a solution to something and you yep. can probably build a good solution to something. So this is where you can see, oh, here's a mismatch between the audience that I'm trying to reach. I'm part of this group. Like these are the, these are my people yelling yep. and, and uh, crying about something not working well enough for them. And here's what they already tried using and it doesn't work. Maybe they will even tell you why it doesn't work which yep. is like somebody just handing out val validation to you, right? So if only somebody would build something that would do it this way, right? It's just <laughs> the perfect way of sourcing these uh, ideas or uh, products that you could potentially build that already somebody is looking for. Like yep. they might even already have paid for the alternative. So the budget is obviously there and they would gladly pay maybe the same amount, maybe more money to your product because mm -hmm. it solves their case better than the other. So that's those four things in ascending order of interest, I guess, are the things that I would look for in a community. And like I said, you tally them up, you you do some like spreadsheet magic to figure out which things have been mentioned the most. And then you go after that. You still have to talk to people, right? You can't just like look at stuff. You still have to kind of investigate, ask yeah. people. Like if somebody asks for a recommendation, they get this list of stuff and then there's silence. Well, DM them. Or like send a message and tell them, well, you got all these recommendations. Did you try any? Did they work? Yep. You can talk to people, right? You can find out information. And you still have to validate that your assumption of something being bad actually means that it really is bad. But yep. the idea is to source these kind of, yeah, all these things where people are unhappy with something and use that as a decision-making tool for what you're going to be building. Beautiful. I love it. I love the uh, the structure to that. That's awesome. Um, we should chat about the, the four stages of a bootstrap business, uh, like I mm. mentioned, and you've got this uh, early on in your book. Uh, the four stages are preparation, which we've talked about a lot. Uh, survival is where we go to next, which is, mm. you know, comes, uh, I guess, much after this lengthy process of preparation, as you as you put it. Uh, survival, then into stability, and then into growth. Um, so perhaps we could uh, touch briefly on those uh, those other three, survival, stability, and growth. Uh, you know, let's say let's, uh, it's the case that a developer has gone through that preparation preparation stage what should they be kind of looking forward to in those next three uh, uh stages after that so the whole point of the survival stage is not to die as a business right the idea is to take what you've built the the product that you are building with your audience with the people your i don't know beta users or your twitter audience or whatever kind of community you might be part of already that you can hopefully tap into to get some sort of feedback on what you're building and turn this from a product that people really like to use into a product that people really like to pay for mm. on a a sustainable basis because you need to build this kind of mechanism to consistently produce revenue, right? Yeah. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a business. Otherwise, it would just be a hobby. And you yeah. want it to be a business, so you need money. And like I said from the beginning, just turn on Stripe, set a price, and see what happens, right? Mm -hmm. If people pay for it, then you've provided value. If people don't, well, then either you're providing too little value, no value, or you're asking for too much money for the value you provide. Like this, this yep. is somewhere in between. And that's kind of the guesswork part. But the survival stage is a lot of experimentation and a lot of trying to hit um, different sweet spots and seeing what happens, just understanding from increasing your prices by 50% one day, if the people, the next cohort of people who join in your uh, trial have the same conversion rate, right? That That's an yep. experiment that you run in that stage. Um, all the while, hopefully, 
at least being um, cash flow positive in, in the product, right? That's that's always the hard part to get to. And that's kind of one of the first stages in survival is for the uh, the software project to at least pay for itself. Yeah. Hosting costs and, you know, like your um, CI system that you have, the, the complicated Kubernetes engineer, all these things that you <laughs> totally need in your yeah. <laughs> that has two users or something. All of this needs to be paid for, right? So that is the first uh, stage you want to reach. And um, either you bootstrap it, you, you pay, use your own funds to pay for it for as long as it needs, or you try to get people paying as soon as possible, even though it may not be much, every little bit really helps, right? Hmm. We, our price point was at $10, $10. I think in the beginning we had two terms uh, or two, two subscription um, levels. One was five bucks a month, the other was 10 bucks a month. We quickly um, removed the five bucks a month one because that was just way too little money for way yeah. too much customer service that we needed to do. And a year after starting the business, we increased price by 50% again. So 15 bucks a month was our basic price um, because we could. And we, we understood there was still some flexibility in the budget for people that 15 bucks was not going to um, get us a lot of cancellations. And it didn't right. because these people really understood the value. Somewhere like, there was customer service conversations where people told us, oh, I would actually pay 50 bucks a month for that. Oh, wow. Well, um, great. <laughs> Good to know. Uh, probably wouldn't have worked for most of our customers, but for yep. some, it would have been a thing. It would have, they, they understood the value so much that these two hours a day where they could teach for and make like 40 bucks every day in additional um, income, obviously 40 bucks a day, that's like in, in, a, in, a, in a month, that's like 800 or something. That's a lot of money. And we charge 10 to be able to do this, right? There was some space in there, but we didn't want to go too far. We just really wanted to help the online English teachers. And we, we got to $55,000 in MRR anyway. So... Mm-hmm. I'm not complaining, but there, there was some uh, experimentation that we could have done, but didn't need to because mm-hmm. our system paid for itself quite quickly. So that's where you want to be in the survival stage to either get to this point where all your infrastructure pays for itself or even the, the much happier point where the whole business is ramen profitable, where it yeah. f- actually pays for you, right? your yeah. life, your insurances, your mortgage or whatever. That um, And trying to get there, experimenting with... How, how do I get more people to join? How do I get more people to retain and to convert? That's the next stage. And that's where it's really about reaching out to the community, getting people involved, both as a first couple of users, first people to give you feedback, trying to get the, um, the software to be as useful for as many people as possible at the same time with every new feature you add mm-hmm. or remove. That's a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like, trying to, to get the, the software to, to have maximum impact for as many people as possible, which is easier for a really specific niche and a really specific tool than for building the next, I don't know, text processing tool, because you would have to serve all different kinds of people. But building the next text editor for React developers now, if they wouldn't already all use VS Code, that would be an easy thing, right? Because you would know what to do. So the idea is, Specific niche, specific product makes it easier to really focus on what helps people and has the highest impact. So you do that in in the um, yeah the, the survival stage, and then at some point you are at this point where you're you actually have found a repeatable model to sell your service, and then mm-hmm. you go into stability. And stability is all about making sure that nothing can topple your business. Like you start getting a team in, into place, you start having a customer service person that takes. The, the cognitive overload of doing customer service during a catastrophe, and I can tell a lot of stories about that, <laughs> servers down, 
browser extension doesn't work anymore. Um, I don't know, like the, the, the SSL certificate just broke. Yeah. And then at the same time, you fix it and everything is like in explosion mode. And then there's a couple <laughs> hundred people telling you, did you know your website is down? And you have to tell them, right? And, and getting somebody to deal with that stabilizes the company. Starting to build um, standard operating procedures for yourself so you can reliably do the same tasks maintenance, deployment, these kind of things, and documentation in general to, to either give to new employees or once you once you sell your business to just casually hand over to your acquirer and then walk away, you start building structure process in the company. You're building um, growth engines like referral systems. You're building um, marketing systems. You, you start actually marketing the product to people outside of the small community that you're in. All this is stability stage. You try to yeah solidify your business into something that cannot just fall over because there's an API that doesn't respond anymore yeah. somewhere. Right? That's that's where this stage is. Uh, that's what that's what that is all about. And that's about building a small team if you need to. We really didn't until very late until we sold. That's when we hired our first people really. But um, we had a couple of freelancers helping us here or there with certain things that we didn't want to do. We got a whole taxes and bookkeeping done by other people. That is where you start doing these things. Because right. now as a founder, you actually have a vision to, to realize, right? You have to do planning and you have to build the thing and like get the feedback and turn the feedback into actionable items to improve the thing that you're building. All of this will need more structure and more process. And then at some point... And, I don't know where this really lies. It's quite arbitrary to think about, but once you have maybe an employee or two, or you can have significant dividends from whatever revenue your your thing your your business generates, then you get into this growth stage where you can mm -hmm. decide: Am I going to take this and try to make it as big as possible, or am I going to take this and put myself essentially just in the owner position in the business, hire a CEO and let them run it, just pay right. them a monthly. Uh, income and I'm just sitting there getting dividends from this, or am I going to sell this? I'm going to mm -hmm. take the business and get acquired or give it, sell it to somebody who wants to acquire a well-running, well-documented business, um, yeah. which you hopefully did because that obviously is making it more sellable, right? Documenting a business and automating as much as you could. Um, that All of these things come in the growth stage. And that's, that's kind of where I talk in the book, at least more about the process of selling, due diligence, and um, the documentation process and, and what comes after. That's more like the, the later part. But yep. yeah, these, these are the stages as I've experienced them, not just once in, in this business in particular, but throughout my career in, as an engineer in all kinds mm -hmm. of different businesses. Interesting. Very cool. Well, we should probably start uh, wrapping up pretty soon, but maybe one thing that we can uh, chat about before we do is the, uh, the, the the point that you got to with Feedback Panda, where you said it's time to sell. Uh, mm -hmm. In the book, it kind of, you, you laid out how you, you weren't initially thinking of selling or, or it wasn't top of mind for you as you were developing the business over the, the two-year period uh, that you did. But uh, some life circumstances made you say, you know, we should, we should think about selling this. And, and you know, there was a, an offer for from a, a PE firm by the sounds of it that came along. So you decided to, to take that offer. Um, I think that a lot of indie hackers probably have it in mind that when they are going to set out on, on something, uh, building something, a sale would be a nice eventuality from that, uh, that thing, right? They, they would love to, to sell a business for a life-changing sum of money. Um, I wonder what you think the, the right way to think about that is as you're building your thing, mm -hmm. because... 
I don't know if it's this this sort of thing where you know you don't you don't count your chips when you're sitting at the table, as it were. Um, you you don't want to be thinking too much about like a potential outcome like that as you're building it, lest you get distracted from from actually focusing on the product and making it good, etc. What is the right way to be kind of mindful though of, of various outcomes of your business, and and how should people think about that? It's pretty much like fundraising in the VC world. Like the less you have to do, the better. Right, because like fundraising is one of these things that derails a lot of startups because it's just so much attention that you need to pay to that process of trying to get more money into your business that your actual business suffers for it and may just right. implode while you're trying to get more money. And it's the same for bootstrappers or indie hackers. Um, it should never really be on on a, the top of your mind that you're gonna or you want to have this exit, this sale, this outcome, that because th that is just a misalignment because the, uh, at least of incentives, right? For me, I, I believe an entrepreneur should be most aligned with the audience that they're serving, the group of mm. people that they actually try to empower. Their needs are the ones that you need to be aligned with, and money will follow, either through right. revenue or at some point people look at your revenue because you're building in public like we did and have yeah. your revenue in public, and people say, oh, interesting graph. This seems to be like to the top and to the right all the time. Yeah. Can can we help you maybe? Like that. that's what happened to us essentially. We had... Um, our revenue on, on India hackers, Stripe verified revenue, um, and not unlike Swix that you had him on the show uh, mm, a couple yeah. episodes ago, right? He had the, he has it with his book at the moment. We had it like really with a SaaS business and that attracted PE firms because that's where mm. they hunt for interesting properties, right? But the, what, what I really wanna, wanna talk about here is that you don't have to focus on selling the business the thing that you should be focusing on is at all times building a sellable business because mm. sellable is to me synonymous with good, right? Mm. Nobody wants to buy a, a bad business. Everybody wants to buy a good business. So for your business to be sellable it has to be good. So if you can consistently make your business sellable at all stages, then the chances are that you're running the best business that you can, which will also mm -hmm. net you the highest premium should anybody ever come and look at it for a potential acquisition. And selling a, um, building a sellable business, to me, I kind of mentioned it already, has two major components. Well, three, having a really good product. That is an mm -hmm. important start, right? That solves a meaningful problem, critical problem for an existing audience. But the other two are really solid documentation internally with all your processes, your SOPs, your the whys and the hows and the wheres and the whens, like all these things about your business. How do I deploy? How do I handle my taxes? How do we right. deal with a customer that wants a refund? Like all these things, they need to be documented somewhere in, in a certain place for all the employees or all the founders that need access to it to easily get this information. And the external documentation as well, like a knowledge base or videos, tutorials, onboarding, all that stuff, just to make it easy for a potential acquirer to just take your business and keep it keep running it without needing to have you in the business right the idea yeah. of a sellable business and that's what uh, john warlow describes in his book built to sell which i highly recommend reading even mm -hmm. even though it's kind of talking about an agency and it's it's like a, a an a prose book or it's just a story a narrative it still has a, a lot of super important points for building sellable businesses and the idea is a sellable business is a business that you don't need to be in anymore where you can take yourself <laughs> out of it and it still runs. And right. everybody who has a private equity company or another company that wants to acquire you, they will love the fact that they can get rid of you and put one of their own in there. 
because that's mm -hmm. the whole point, right? You're right. not supposed to be um, strictly relevant to running the business. The more you can remove yourself from it, the better. And documentation does this internally and externally, and automation does the same. Like we had, in the end, I think around 5,000 plus customers that we served as two people, Daniela and I. Mm -hmm. We're the only people in the business, and we were manning intercom, or womaning, and we were both like doing intercom, and um, we de dealt with all the customer service stuff, but we mm -hmm. could have never dealt with that if we hadn't had automations in place. Like if right. you have 5,000 customers and they all have their little problems, if you do not have a good knowledge base that automatically suggests articles when people ask a question on intercom or whatever kind of tool you use, then you're going to have a lot of work. If you don't right. have autoresponders to certain keywords where you have a clear response for people to go through, I can't log in, my password doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Like in 98%, in the response, and we were using our zero was, mm -hmm. well, you probably signed up with login with Google. Can you try yeah. this, right? Yep. It's always the same. People think something, type something, start complaining. And then you yep. tell them, well, have you tried these other two options that you could have really easily tried yourself? <laughs> and then they do it and then it works, right? So this is, this is something that a machine can do for me. Because if somebody say, I, says, I can't log in, well, if this is 98% likely that they just did press the right button, Auto reply. And yep. that's the kind of stuff that you build up. These systems, once you set them up, they remove you from the necessity of being part of the operations of a business, which mm -hmm. means that either you replace yourself as a CEO by hiring one, or you just sell the whole thing and somebody else hires a CEO for that business. And as, like I said, sellable business is an optimal business, is a business that runs as smoothly as possible. And that's where people want to end up, right? That's mm -hmm. what people want to buy and that's what you want to sell. And if you focus on that all the time, then you will get an acquisition offer at some point. Mm -hmm. This is one instance where you want to uh, work yourself out of a job at all costs if yeah. you can. Yeah, this, that, right. that's and really that, cool. That's, and that makes the difference between being a salaried employee and an entrepreneur, right? Yeah, like the employee absolutely. needs job security because they need to keep the income. But for the entrepreneur, there is this potential windfall that's always on the horizon. And that's what I mean with incentives. That's the incentive you should align to. Right, that yep. at any given point, there might be something. So you might just as well operate the business as well as possible at any given point. Love it, love it, love it. Awesome, well, this has been excellent, Arvid. Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, where can people find you online if you want to be found? You are on Twitter, we'll link that up. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter? Twitter, um, yeah, th thanks for talking to me, by the way. That was really nice. Um, on Twitter, you can, you can find me uh, at Arvid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. Um, that I'm DMs are open. Just ask me any kind of question. I, I talk to everybody. I'm not discriminatory. And I, I really, really enjoy being on Twitter. I'm there way too much, probably. <laughs> um, but that's that's where you can reach me. And then I guess um, my blog, The Bootstrapped Founder, which is where I write an article every week. And you, you'll see an article about like uh, the shape of problems in the wild uh, there that we just talked about. And I have a podcast there where I essentially read the article so that people who don't like to read or don't want to read or who can't read can actually still benefit from that stuff as well. There's a newsletter and all that stuff. But yeah, the Bootstrap founder and just find me on Twitter, hit me up and you'll find all the cool things that I'm working on. 
Excellent. We'll link all of that up in the show notes. And uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on. I, I've learned a ton today. I'm excited to dig further into your book, Zero to Sold. We'll mention that one more time. Zero to Sold, it is here by Arvid Call. How to start, run, and sell a bootstrap business. So recommend that to anyone who's listening. We'll link that up in the show notes as well. So yes, once again, Arvid, thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we can do a round two at some point and learn about some of your uh, your next entrepreneurial ventures. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Ryan. I'm totally looking forward to our next chat. This was really cool. Thank you so much for tuning into the Entrepreneurial Coder podcast today. This has been episode 43 with Arvid Call. You can find show notes with links to all the resources that Arvid mentioned over at ecpodcast.io. There you can also subscribe. Go to ecpodcast.io slash subscribe. And if you would like to leave a rating and review, that would be awesome. Check us out on Twitter at twitter.com slash coderpodcast. Podcast.